Hello, my name's Ken Barrett and welcome to Brainland podcast number 11. One of the ethical issues we tackle in our opera Brainland is military funding of neuroscience. And as part of the background research, I read an excellent book called Mind Wars by Jonathan D. Marino, a bioethicist at Pennsylvania University in the US. In fact, to give him his full title, he's the David and Lynn Silfen Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy and the History of Social Science. He served on three presidential and many other commissions and is currently also an investigator on the Department of Defence's Minerva Project, which is on artificial intelligence-enabled neurotechnologies and warfighters. I tell you all this because Professor Marino has agreed to come on the podcast. We recorded this on Zoom, of course, and had a lovely chat, so I hope you enjoy it. Your book, Mind Wars, uh, which is a few years ago now, I know it was fascinating and interesting coming from an academic in bioethics. In your book, you talk about your early life and how that may have influenced you and your career choice. I wonder if we could start by talking a bit about your background and, and that side of things. Sure. Uh, so um, sometimes when I start to give a talk, I say I grew up in a mental hospital and then um, people in the audience, I can see them, you know, snickering and elbowing each other. And uh, somebody says, yeah, my family is crazy, too. Uh, and I said, no, I, I really grew up in a mental hospital. Uh, my father was a well-known psychiatrist and social scientist who uh, had a small mental hospital um, about 60 miles north of New York City in the Hudson Valley uh, from the mid-30s until he gave up his insurance uh, in the late 1960s. Um, for reference, I should also explain that my father was 63 when I was born. So uh, he had a whole lifetime uh, before I showed up. Um, but, but there were a number of things about growing up in that environment that I think you know, keyed me toward uh, what I ended up doing. Um, my father didn't respect dis academic disciplines and he really didn't respect academics either all that much. Um, so I, in my work, I have been unable to discipline myself, pun intended, um, you know, from one topic to another. So the book that you're talking about, Mind Wars, uh, which I started actually pretty much 20 years ago, now that I think about it, um, in 2003, 2004, uh, was a result of realizing that many of the issues that I'm interested in, in in the history of human and ethics of human experiments were really grounded in, uh, in in what you might very broadly call national security considerations, military considerations. And I'd already written about the history of human experiments uh, for national security in a book called Under Risk. And then I did a book about biological weapons. And then I thought it was done with that topic. How much more can you do on bioethics and national security, right? And then... Um, I started seeing all these publications about neuroscience and especially capitalizing on some of the things we'll talk about, which is the the the, the new technologies uh, like MRI that people were applying to understanding um, the mechanisms of the brain. Well, can we go back to, to what you just mentioned about the human experimentation? I mean, I was aware that in World War II, there was quite a lot of military funding for psychology, work on vigilance and information processing, gun aiming, that sort of thing. That yeah. had a huge effect, really, on, on the development of that. But I wasn't aware of the human experimentation sort of outside of Nazi Germany, put it that way. Could you talk a bit about that? Please? 
Well, indeed, indeed, although, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, in bioethics, we talk a lot about the, the Holocaust-related human experiments in the camps. Um, in fact, as I'm sure you know, the Japanese imperial yeah. government right. also did a lot of um, mostly biological weapons experiments in Harbin, Manchuria, and there were several units that were devoted to this. Um, but um, uh, the U.S. had its own uh, program for doing human experiments, and some of them involved uh, nutrition. So there were stories about uh, what we would today call conscientious objectors walking around Minneapolis, very skinny fellows. Uh, and um, they were... Carrying you know, a frying pan in the rucksack. I seem to remember something about that. We can be obsessed with food because they were... Yeah, they were obsessed calories. with food because they weren't getting, more than, I don't know, 500 calories a day for, no, for, wow, that low. for a grown man or something like that. So um, how long could you go, right? Uh, but, um, you know, there were lots of experiments. Uh, I, I, as you may have run across this item from work I did 30 years ago for a presidential advisory commission on ionizing radiation experiments. And um, so in hospitals uh, during World War II, toward the end, injecting patients with plutonium. Wow. Uh, and, and that stimulated 30 years later, a, a presidential commission that I worked for. So um, there's really quite a lot. And, and of course, we shouldn't be too confined by the explicit use of the term experiment, right? There's a lot of stuff that's going on that uh, can be construed as training uh, and that today we might frown on classifying it that way, but um, the definitions were much more loose, loosey-goosey uh, at the time and the, and the rules were, uh, I wouldn't say non-existent, but they were flimsy at best. But service personnel as well, wasn't it? It wasn't just oh, the indeed. Uh, projectors or patients. Yes, uh, you know, I'll, I will say, since we'll, we'll probably talk about cognitive enhancement a little bit, yeah. but you know, during World War I, the what was called a, originally the Binet test, the, the early version of the IQ test was used uh, to cl um, classify British soldiers, uh, uh, conscripts. Uh, and um, it seems that it was the idea was that if you didn't score high, you got into the infantry. End of story. Um, that turned out to be a very bad idea because people realized that in an infantry unit, you need to have lots of different personality types, lots of different skills and so forth. So that I think that lesson was learned in World right. War I and it was applied in World War II. Um, so um, the, this business of you know trying something new and people in uniform is is not new. I mean, it, it's it's ancient. It it seems uh, well. I, I I guess we could go back to some you know psychology and studying psychology in ancient Greece and stuff like that. But Indeed. it must have been the Korean War that widened the focus to neuroscience, particularly with military and, and intelligence. Can we talk about that? Uh, uh, sorry, why that was? Yeah, I mean, there, there 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 are two very different oh, you might say strands of of chemicals that affect the brain that came out of the, of the World War II era into the 1950s. Uh, one was drug, the, the very lethal drugs like Selman and Tabun and so forth and sarin gas. The other is the, is the so quote unquote hallucinogens. Now, um, the, the most original one, the original one that came out of the World War II era was, was LSD, we, we used to be called LSD-25. Um, and, but you know there were all there was also interest in in at least uh, in the german side of mescaline uh which is not which is ancient right not nature not a construct uh so 
Um, but LSD was uh, uh, particularly fascinating. You, you actually see them in the late 1940s, uh, uh, Swiss psychiatrists getting interested in the question whether LSD could be used as, um, as a test bed for um, new therapies for mental illness. So the idea originally was that perhaps LSD was a psychotomimetic, that it, it could be used to induce um, psychotic delusions in a, an otherwise, you know, quote unquote, normal person, and that you could then test different interventions, psychotherapies and so forth. Um, that idea was, I think, pretty much finished by the mid-1950s. But um, what you could learn from delusional states through hallucinogens continued to be of interest, and it was interest in the civilian world, not only in the West, by the way, but, um, you know, as you may know, also in Czechoslovakia, in Bulgaria. Uh, you could ask whether that was also of interest to authorities, you know, law enforcement authorities in those places, perhaps. Uh, I think it's likely, but also in places like Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan was a hotbed of, of LSD research <laughs> for alcoholism. Oh, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. And that fell apart in the late 1950s. Um, so this has been going. And then, of course, as you know, um, I'm sure the 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 LSD uh, experiments with soldiers in, uh, in the in Britain and uh, and in the U.S., in the in the in the early 1960s, I just showed my my students last week um, a video that's been on the on the web for a long time about Operation Moneybags, uh, which was the uh, use of LSD with soldiers with British soldiers. Uh, and funny enough, video in psychiatric training in the UK in the 1960s, it was routine to take LSD. Yes, no doubt. a colleague saying, uh, "Oh, I, he was a strange one. He was the one who tried to climb out the window when we all took LSD." You know, so it, it was only in the early seventies that it uh, it fell out. But mind control was another sort of big paranoia, wasn't it? That sort of entered the popular fiction and and sort of journalistic uh, writing. Yeah, no, nobody ever really defined it or what they meant by it. Um, but you know, the the classic statement of it is in that novel, The Manchurian Candidate, that yeah. came out in nineteen fifty five. And then the film, a, a, a portion of which I also showed to my class. Uh, I'm timing that one, wasn't it? It came out, it came out the, a month after the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. Like yes, that. And, yeah, terrible timing. It didn't do well. Uh, I've read that Frank Sinatra, who was the star, had to buy copies of it so they wouldn't destroy it. I don't know oh, if that's true. Wow. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a pretty good film. Yeah. Angela Hansbury, Frank Sinatra. It's, you know, it's a decent and the remake's film. fascinating. They flipped then into implants, didn't they? Yeah, something. I was much happier with the original. But yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, hey, yeah. Sorry, interrupt. You're, yeah, sorry. Indeed, you're right. I mean, mind control using drugs. Yeah. It's come kind of mishmash of behaviorism, you know, stimul simple stimulus response. Nobody ever could explain how that could possibly work. No, it's that conditioning thing as well, wasn't it? That was in the Manchurian Candidate. Well, yeah, exactly, it was, right. It goes back to Pavlov and he was Russian and all that sort of stuff, really. It's a, it was an omelette of uh, some notion of the unconscious and conditioning and stimulus response and a particular drug, and nobody ever really knew what the hell they were talking about. But this but, Korean POW is suddenly dissing the United States was a big deal, wasn't it, really? I mean, that it was a big deal. This is that. what stimulated the worries that the CIA had about uh, what the um, the Chinese or the North Koreans might be doing with our people. I mean, I think the conclusion was, and by the way, two, Cor two Cornell University neurologists looked at this in the early 50s for the agency, and they their conclusion was it wasn't drugs. It was just really, you know, really good propagandizing and right. reconditioning, uh, quote unquote, 
yeah. re-education yeah. uh, in, in the camps. So nothing all that mysterious about it. No. I, I, okay, so, so then MKUltra came out of all that, didn't it, at that sort of time? Can you do it? Yes, no, it was a serious investment. Uh, um, and that went on for some years, didn't it? That, that was about mind control again, wasn't it? But, uh, it, it was, and it was, and it was about, stories, so. yes, about offense and defense, uh, how to use LSD uh, and LSD antagonists. Um, most of that documentation was destroyed, it seems, by uh, Richard Helms, the um, the CIA director. Oh, oh, yes, I remember. before he died, before he took his life, apparently in 1973. Um, very little. So very, there's very little documentation. I show my class uh, a, a memo from uh, 1953 uh, that uh, was basically, I think, an accounting document. Um, I remember reading that they forgot to clear the accounting documents. So they, it seems that they forgot to. hundreds of thousands of pounds paid uh, dollars paid out, but thirty nine thousand five hundred dollars to be exact, which is oh, a yeah, yeah, right. in nineteen fifty three. Yeah. Uh, so you know, but I and I, I surmise that they forgot to to go to the accounting files. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that uh, t- tell us about DARPA because that again is still around, isn't it? Really, and yes, DARPA that? originally ARPA. Uh, then became DARPA uh, around 19, the early 1970s. Um, they added the word defense to advance research projects agency, uh, make it a little more you know, acceptable, I guess, politically in those days. Um, and that was Sputnik put the frights under them. I, I Sputnik pushed it, uh, pushed a lot of buttons. Uh, yeah, yeah. And got very, people were very anxious. Um, so uh, ARPA, uh, I mean, the, the big advertisement for ARPA is that they were engaged in helping to develop the uh, the internet. Um, what uh, what they don't like to talk about quite so much, but what is well documented is that they were also involved with developing uh, uh, defoliants uh, that were used in Vietnam. Wow. So, um, but I am not uh, I am not a big critic of DARPA. Uh, I am actually um, I, I I like the work that DARPA does from a scientific standpoint. They're serious. They they're they're they have they spent, don't spend much money out of three you know out of a what an eight or nine hundred billion dollar DOD budget much of which uh, I think is not well spent uh, they they're about three billion dollars more or less and uh, their mission is to push con- current technology uh, as far as it can go uh, in the in, in the present um, and they you know they try a lot of stuff they threw a lot of spaghetti up against the wall but it's being done by legitimate people. Some of it sticks. Some of it doesn't come off the wall until years later. I was going to ask about, I mean, I was amazed to read in Mind Wars about the extent of this. I mean, you're talking about MIT, this is a few years since the last edition came out, half a billion dollars just to MIT and 300 million to uh, Johns Hopkins, 350 colleges receiving Pentagon funding. It sounds a bit like a cash cow for academics and entrepreneurs. Encouraging them to sort of spin their work in a military sort of way. I mean, how much of it comes out the other end with some kind of military payoff? Would you say? Um, you know, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know what. You know, what would the metric be for that? Yeah, you know, that's true. That's to know true. whether it <laughs> yeah. comes out. Um, you know, my view is somebody has to be responsible for uh, seeing how far uh, a current technology can go, and that's that's their mission. And the odds are you will fail, or you will fail for some period of time, and then you'll look, take another look back at it and see if any any of it um, makes sense with 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 newer tools or with a new project. 
And it's interesting. I mean, how on earth is this stuff in the public domain so much, though, really? Because it, 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 DARPA is very public, at least the bits we know about. I mean, is there another level, do you think, that we, it's kept very secret? Or So I think that it's important uh, to distinguish between the science and the applications. The science is public. And that's what allowed me to, when I realized that, I realized I could write a book you know, right. <laughs> called Mind Wars because... I, I was looking at all these papers about brain science and in the early 2000s, and, and many of them said we have funding from DARPA. Uh, and I thought, wow, if I can connect the dots here, I can see what kinds of things they're interested in. The applications are what's sensitive, right? So, um, you know, you take somebody who's working on ultrasound to look inside a pyramid, uh, that that technology could be used to look inside a mountain. Uh, right. And, you know, so... Uh, I think that that's a very, that is very important to understand that it's not the science, it's the it's the applications. Yeah. Um, and you know they get top people. as you say, um, there is some tweaking, right? They might call the scientist and say, look, uh, reading your papers, some program manager who really knows what they're doing will look through the literature and say, I'm reading your papers, uh, you were doing X, y, and Z. Um, we have an idea uh, and we can write you a check. Right. So, you know, that's a hell of a lot better than applying for an NIH or a National well, Science yeah. Center. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah. A hell of a, uh, and they're good I, people. I mean, MIT is the top of the pile, isn't it, really, in terms of uni world universities and all. You know, it's not like they're, it, 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 they're going to, you know, hold in the corner places. No, a major player. Uh, and, this, and this, again, started in the beginning of World War II and even before World War II. Um, at first, there was some reluctance among leaders of places like MIT and Harvard to get into this stuff. Uh, but then they realized there's so much money, uh, and there was a patriotic argument. Uh, so, and the, uh, so, yeah, there is an unusually close relationship, or there's a different, there's a unique relationship between the academy, uh, academic science in the U.S. and the federal government. I don't, you don't have quite have that even in the U.K. I did uh, a number. It was night 2008. I was at a meeting at the Royal Dutch Navy uh, on, I guess it was on brain science stuff but it was not long after that book had come out, the first edition had come out. And one of the other speakers there had just retired as the author of Doctrine for the Royal Navy. And uh, he gave a nice talk. And afterwards I said to you, are you as gadget focused as we are you know, over there? And he said, no, first of all, he says, you, you have all the money. Uh, and he said, if, and if the toys work, you give them to us. Right. So I thought that was quite, right. quite amusing. But what seems to the publications? I know um, the, uh, the 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 guy who got me interested in this is the one who's in the opera, who who was funded by the U.S. Air Force to do. Yeah. Uh, it was EEG based stuff, but but I, I, he'd worked with uh, a colleague of Pavlov's in the thirties, and I, I would guess he was able to spin it as a sort of conditioning mind control. That you know, again, nothing military came out of that. Um, the, the, I know Delgado, you mentioned in your book, is the famous, you know, stopping the charging bull guy through telemetry. Um, his papers were published in the Navy Research Journal, I think, really. It, 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 have they got separate strands as, as well, that these people? Are, uh, or is it is DARPA just funnel it all um, through them now? Well, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I think there are different strands. Um, it's not only DARPA, right? You, there, there are other agencies like the intel the intelligence community's version of of DARPA, which is called IARPA, mm -hmm. uh, and you know. So, I, I, it's not all going on in DARPA. Uh, in social science, there's a a small uh, program called the Minerva, the Minerva Research Program that I, I should say has funded me. Uh, 
on uh, brain machine interface. So um, from an ethics standpoint. So uh, there's a lot of different strands I think going on. The, but you know, EEG, um, you know, was pretty much the only game in town for quite a while, for decades, yeah. until uh, MRI, as I mentioned, in the early 1990s. Um, and, and you know, what Delgado did, I've heard, uh, since, as you well know, I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, mm -hmm. um, but people have said to me, look, you put anything in, 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 in any creature's yeah. brain and, and put a lot of electricity through yeah. it, they're, they're going to react. Anywhere <laughs> in the head. Anywhere. You can put it anywhere. So... Nonetheless, yeah. you got to give, give Delgado credit. First of all, he's an amazingly interesting character, as so many of these people are. Yeah. I should also mention um, a University of Pennsylvania professor whose name you all know, John Lilly, mm -hmm. uh, who was a very uh, distinguished researcher in EEG and then uh, got interested in, in whether we could communicate with dolphins. And that's, right. that made him quite famous uh, in the 60s and 70s. He thought if we could communicate with dolphins, then that's like communicating with an alien. Uh, and they're right here, and we know they're pretty smart. Um, well, it's, it's not well known that uh, Berger, who's another person in our opera, actually, is, he, he went into medicine because he wanted to look into telepathy. Because uh -huh. he had a, a near-death experience that his, his sister, uh -huh. 200 kilometers away, was aware of something bad had happened. And it made him change career into medicine. And, and then, you know, and he, he by chance discovered the EEG. Um, but was a psychiatrist, so nobody really believed him for five years. You know, I didn't. I, oh, that's a great story. I didn't know that. Thank you. No, no, uh, it's it's very. There's a fantastic book by a guy called Cornelius Bork. He's a German academic who's written a the sort oh, of this. spent months and years possibly in the archives and Berger's archives. So yeah, it is a it is a. You just added to my reading list. Thanks a lot. An interesting thread. Uh, Bork. Bork. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping to get him on the podcast. Well, I hope you do. Uh, you've made me, you know, think about coincidences in the history of medicine. Uh, so the interest in LSD actually led to a whole bunch of interest in in serotonin and neuro, and and neuroreceptors in the yeah. early 1950s. So, so that was also you know you never know what I mean. This is sort of I think the DARPA point as well. You never know what alley you go down that's going to lead you into another alley that you didn't. No, know no, sure. And, and there's a lot of um, I mean, other project we're working on now is about the early early days of UK cybernetics, and and a lot of that work came directly out of the World War Two and people funded psychologists funded. Doing then to think about that these things. So yeah, it's it's a yeah. it's, it's an ill wind, really, isn't it? That's what you have to have to say. Yeah. Um, can we talk about some specifics? I, I mean, you, you've alluded to a couple of things already, um, and you go through quite a lot in in, in your book. Um, advanced war fighters, it seems to be a, a sort of big aim. Can we t talk about that? What is meant by that? Well, I mean, I guess I would say there are at least two major strands. One is the um, physical improvements, some kind of her enhancement, and the other would be some kind of cognitive enhancement. So on the on the physical side, um, the notion that you could create artificial arms or legs, and we already have right in uh, the, that South African athlete who had to go to prison uh, for killing his girlfriend uh, was also using already using a version of these. Um, the, the 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 problem with these um, artificial limbs. A problem is that you might be able to to use them in a highly restricted lab environment, and this has been very slow going. I mean, there's been improvements, but it's really slow the last twenty years. Uh, getting them into the real world, the kinetic world, is a different story, and uh, particularly getting the sensations to come in as well as to go out, the afferent as well as the efferent, right? The proprioception that we get through our limbs. Um, but uh, this has been an interest of mine for a long time, and it's one of the reasons. 
I I am a DARPA supporter uh, because um, I, my mother was an amputee of the right arm of the clavicle uh, when she was not yet 40 wow. uh, because she had a sarcoma and she was never able to wear, wear a prosthetic. There wasn't enough left and they were terrible anyway in those days. Uh, so, um, you know, any work that's done to help anybody who for any reason has lost a limb is of interest to me. But getting that proprioception right, you know, that yeah. is nobody knows how I don't believe we're really close to that. Uh, getting people, helping people to control their environment by moving a cursor on a computer screen, that's a different story. But uh, the, the real stuff in the real world is, is very tough. I mean, we're pretty good at text generation now, right? Um, and image generation. But once you try to link that to a, to an, a creature, uh, an automaton, <laughs> that's a whole different ballgame. But I think stream of, of um, feedback, isn't it, from your limbs? You know, well, exactly. And it, in a second to second, a millisecond to millisecond, where is it going on, really? I am not, I mean, look, you and I won't be around, you know, to get answer to this question, but I'm not confident we'll really ever get there no. uh, in a in a non-biological uh, space. I, I just, uh, it, it just seems to me so hard. And um, and, and again, I, there have been advances in the laboratory, uh, people who have tetraplegia, uh, who now have wireless, you know, those, that's really a big improvement, wireless devices instead of cable, but um, it's still brain surgery. So how do you, you know, now now we're in a whole other realm of Neuralink and various other versions of trying to get uh, impulses out of the brain, workers now, and probably by some of my students, uh, you know, right, yeah. uh, to, keep, to keep them awake and alert for more than, you know, 24, 48 hours. Um, it is, it's just very hard to improve on Mother Nature. Yeah, and all I mean, metabolic dominance is a phrase I picked up in your book. I mean, it's it's an interesting idea, really. How, how do you make your troops metabolically more dominant than the than the other? Yes. You know, I, I did some. So yeah, the idea here is how do you um, metabolize protein, you know, more efficiently than the other guy. Um, this goes back though. I did some work about a year and a half ago on the history of of rations, uh, yeah. which really starts with Napoleon in the early nineteenth century and. Um, there's it's it's remarkable if you start looking at the different combinations of of foodstuffs for different purposes for different combat environments it's incredible how refined it is uh so this idea that you can you know you you do need to get protein into people uh and you know it, it is it uh is it 24 hours before they go into the theater or is it two weeks before they go in and is it very hot or is it very cold is it very dry or is it very damp? All this is a is a as a question of of the provisions that you send them in with. Sure, and, and strange ideas like transdermal food, you know, like presumably like uh, nicotine patches, but would get food into. I suppose they try anything really just to see if it. Indeed, I mean the point of the you know the pacing threat for the U.S. is China, right? Yeah. If you talk to anybody now in in the U.S., it's you know, there are three concerns: China, China, and China. Oh. Right. Okay. So if if they're trying to figure it out, then we're if we think they might even be might even be considering trying it out, we're going to try it out. So can we talk about your specialist subject, bioethics? To start with, I wonder if you could talk about the Nuremberg Code, which seems to be quite an important signpost along the way. Really. Yeah. So the Nuremberg Code is what posterity calls uh, a list of ten rules that the judges in the trial of uh, twenty three Nazi doctors and and medical bureaucrats. Uh, that was held 
um, among the 13 trials in Nuremberg, still Germany in those days in 46 and 47, not yet West Germany. Um, there were these 13 trials began with the first trial of the, you know, the politicians, the admirals and the generals, the ones who survived um, the war. Um, and then uh, there was a question, you know, what should the second trial be? Uh, and uh, it, 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 so much evidence had accumulated in the course of preparing for the first trial about uh, medical experiments that it was decided finally uh, by the Americans, the, the other allies dropped out after the first trial, that there should be a trial of medical doctors. And what uh, struck the judges was that there were no recognized international rules for doing human experiments. Uh, so they decided they needed to um, they needed to create some language that could be uh, a guidance for you know for the new uh, the new international order that was emerging from that period. And this is what we know as the Nuremberg Code. And is that still applied still, or has it just been developed in different uh, ethics departments or books? Well, I like I like to say that there are the the two most cited and least read documents in the history of medicine are the Hippocratic Oath and the Nuremberg Code. Right, right. Uh, so uh, I, I often burst the bubble of my medical colleagues when I say, you know, first do no harm does not appear in the Hippocratic Oath. I know you think it does. Yeah, yeah. You'd like to stand up and say, oh, I took an oath, first do no harm. I said, no, no doctor, you did not. Right. Which, which not <laughs> so um, what's the role of a bioethicist in this world then, really, that you've been immersed in? You're obviously being involved in congressional inquiries and, you know, at all sorts of levels. I mean, what is your role in, in, in that? You know, uh, what's unique, uh, I'm going to make a sociology of knowledge point more than a uh, more than ethics point. What's unique about bioethics is among academic fields, it has been legitimized more than any other academic field by government interest in, in issues around uh, medical science and uh, human experiments. Um, and it's been legitimized by, first in the US, but also in the UK, by commissions uh, that were, have been created by government. But did and, they come out of any particular political color? Because you'd imagine there'd be more red here and blue over there that would be more interested in, in the, those sorts of issues. Well, of course, we're now talking about um, the era before we were so divided in the US. Uh, and I think there was a lot of, there was some, there was an assumption uh, after uh, World War II that we didn't do what the Nazis did. And right. then in the mid-1960s, there were some public scandals that were quite embarrassing. Right. It, it really wasn't until the early 70s, and particularly this, the, what's known as the Tuskegee syphilis study, that motivated elected officials to get serious about looking at the rules uh, for doing human experiments. So it was an, I think it was a matter of public scandal that really pushed oh, this. So whoever it was, they had to be looked at in, in some... Yeah, it was, too it was so embarrassing. And... And and uh, you know government money was being spent on these things. What was really was part of everyday practice now is informed consent, and what I was really surprised in your book is where that came from. Can you talk well, about? I mean, in, it, we like to think that informed consent came from uh, the Nuremberg Code, but again, the term voluntary consent is the term in the code in the first sentence of the code, not informed consent. That so far as we know, I say we, the community of historians who looked at this, the only the first use of it is by the Atomic Energy Commission uh, in 1947, when they're worried that the radioisotopes that they're distributing to uh, medical scientists for purposes of, of, of uh, pushing the envelope and 
in, in, in the use of, of radioisotopes for diagnostic purposes and perhaps for treatment purposes, they were worried that um, they would misuse them. Uh, that, and, and because of those plutonium injections that I mentioned, which were still secret yeah. at that time, that, that motivated the lawyers, apparently, in the AEC, in the Atomic Energy Commission, to say, uh, really, you need to get informed consent before you do this to the, to, to, to the doctors who are getting these materials. Uh, now, did they? Uh, no, <laughs> as far as we can tell, they did not. You have to, you know, you trust but verify, right? There's no follow-up. Yeah, yeah. They really did this. But uh, surprisingly enough, the term informed consent does not come from the specifically routine medical world. It comes from the world of the use of ionizing radiation uh, <laughs> yeah. in the late 1940s. And now it's everywhere, really. Okay. Now it's everywhere, with a lot of disagreement about what it really means. Right. Can we flip to the future then for the last few minutes? Um, I mean, are, are, your, are you very concerned with ethics of artificial intelligence at the moment, or are there any other hot topics? You know, you just can't escape AI now <laughs> in any sense. Uh, actually, as an, as an academic, you know, interested in these things, AI pops up all the time. I think the... Um, so I, I, I do talk about AI in my classes, um, lots of interesting issues uh, that philosophical issues about the nature of consciousness and you know when do we know if an ai is sentient and uh th does the does the turing test actually work uh to convince us that this thing is sentient or is it really a, is that really a test of human gullibility which i think it is uh so um uh but i think that you know what i say to my uh students these days is if you're going to get into a field like this you need to worry about data science uh, because the data, whatever field you're talking about, it's a, it's all about the data, yeah. uh, and that's going to be true. It's already true in genetics. It's true in neuro neuroscience, but it's also going to be true in the clinical setting. So you and I, who are people of a certain age, you know, we may not benefit from this, but um, our data is ultimately patient data is going to be combined with uh, all the research papers that a GP GPT ten can scrape. Uh, and all of the other information from similarly situated uh, people like us and compared and a protocol will be sent to our doctor. And I think the, the challenge, a challenge is going to be the role of your medical doctor uh, in yeah. deviating from the recommendations from the algorithm for you. You know, this is what Ken needs. Your doc has a different intuition. Yeah. But, you know, is the NHS going to pay for your doctor's intuition or right. is the NHS going to pay for what the algorithm says? Well, I was interested. I learned fairly recently. I learned there's a new term, computational psychiatry. Ah. Uh, in fact, I'm hoping to have a professor of it on the podcast, really, which is really about trying to get beyond the sort of 19th century classifications into some more data-driven, you, you know, uh, classification or treatment approach or something a bit more complex, really. Well, you know, Kreplin was in the ascendant in when my father got his degree, his MD from the University of Vienna in 1917. It was yeah. all about Kreplin. It was not about Freud. It was about no, no, and he was data driven. I mean, he kept everything on on cards, you know, that he then just, oh, well, we'll do it in those two piles. And the trouble is we're still stuck with those two piles. And it's very exactly right. And you know, a, a recent director of the National Institute of Mental Health, as you know, a, a few years ago, said, I, I've given out billions of dollars and we haven't really done much good. Wow. Uh, so this is the shift is now toward let's get the basic neuroscience right. Are we are we really can't get to where we need to go with mental illness. Um, and I, I think that's probably right, but boy, that is going to take a long time. And I've heard psychiatrists say, you know, those grants to the neuroscientists, neuropsychiatrists, that's fine. 
but I've got a I've got a very depressed person coming in to see me on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, who's, who's, who's at risk, and you know, what do I do with them? Is that this question, isn't it? Really? Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's, that's been great, Jonathan. I'm really really delighted that you you came on, and and uh, it's been a fantastic uh, episode. Thanks for inviting me. Really really great conversation. So there we are. Many thanks to Professor Marino for coming on the podcast, for being such a great guest. Um, his book that we mentioned is Mind Wars, and there's a link on the episode notes. It ends on quite an optimistic note, and I asked him if he would mind uh, reading the final paragraph just to close. And fortunately, he's agreed. So thank you for listening. The long-term trajectory of humanity combines with a growing capacity for indiscriminate destruction, along with vast increases in constructive methods and techniques for solving problems that inhibit human flourishing. Somehow these seemingly contradictory traits must be neurologically linked. Perhaps understanding more about this excruciatingly complex system, we can turn ourselves from the wars of the mind to the peace of the soul.